I'd like to open our service this evening by reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. I'd invite you to turn there with me uh, to read uh, alongside Deuteronomy, chapter 7. As God reminds his people Israel of why he has chosen them and who he is and how great he is and the purpose behind all of these things. It's a wonderful reminder for us as well, but it also fits with what we're going to be looking at tonight later in our series in Exodus. But Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse one says, when the Lord, your God brings you into the land, which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make them sorry. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods so that the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations and those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. What a wonderful reminder. I know this is given to the people of Israel, uh, but the motivation for his choice was not because of their great strength, but because of his great love. Let's open our time in a word of prayer and then uh, we'll continue with our service. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for uh, what has already taken place today on this Lord's Day, for the fellowship, the worship, the preaching of your word. And uh, I know many uh, groups and people have met even throughout the day for fellowship and for encouragement. And I pray that your people will be edified and built up in the faith. And now, Lord, as we close the day and we seek to end this day again, being fed by your word, I pray that our hearts would be lifted up and encouraged. And as we uh, pray together and worship together and serve together, um, that, Lord, you'd be honored and lifted up. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Just a a couple of announcements to make before we uh, get into God's word tonight. Of course, following our time in in uh, in uh, Exodus tonight, in our study of Exodus, we'll be having a time of prayer uh, together, and Pastor Andrew will come and lead that uh, later tonight. So please be thinking about prayer points or praise points that you would like to share uh, with us that we can support you and pray for you in that way. 
just a few announcements to make is uh, that uh, this month's men's ministry has been postponed or canceled, I guess you could say, um, and uh, that they will be planning on having a December men's ministry meeting. That normally takes place once a month on Saturdays. Um, and so if you haven't been to one of the men's fellowship dinners, uh, I would encourage you to listen out for that when it comes around in December. Uh, also a reminder that our January Kids Club, which we normally do every January, it's a wonderful event as uh, we get around 120 uh, children coming along uh, for almost a week in January. Uh, we're postponing that to April and we're praying and hoping that at least in the next couple of months we'll know more a bit about the restrictions and different things that uh, we're allowed to do and uh, in terms of that. Uh, not that we're restricted in sense of numbers, but it just makes it a lot easier uh, if we're coordinating in April rather than in January. Uh, also, next Sunday afternoon, uh, that's the 15th of November, from 2.30 to 4.30, we'll be having another membership class. Uh, now, membership class is if you uh, are wor- wondering about what it means to be a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, or if you are considering being a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, uh, this is a class we've just begun. And uh, it basically will take you through uh, what we believe is a church, what it means to be a member of our church. And then we ask you to prayerfully consider after that whether or not you would uh, like to join us uh, as a member here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. So I would encourage you to come along if you're curious. Uh, you can sign up online and uh, super easy, but it's from 2.30 to 4.30 next Sunday afternoon. Uh, and then also... Uh, be in mind that in three weeks time in our evening service, we'll be having a baptism service. We had one a couple of weeks ago and uh, it was baptism services are always exciting. And so uh, we have a number of people who are already uh, asked to be baptized. But if you would like to be baptized or know more about baptism, please contact uh, one of the pastors or our church office and uh, we can organize that for you. So those are our announcements. And of course, after our service tonight, we invite you, if you would like to, to stay around uh, for some tea and coffee afterwards and fellowship and just enjoying one another. All right. Uh, please turn with me in our the Word of God to Exodus chapter 23 as we continue our study in this great book, uh, the book of the Exodus, the story of God's redeeming and establishing his people. And uh, we uh, continue our series in chapter 23 tonight. We're going to be looking at verses 20 down to verse 33. We finished off last week looking at kind of a summary of the civil laws that God gave uh, to the people of Israel and uh, those statutes and principles that God established for them in the land. And uh, there was, of course, great blessing that God gave to them if they obeyed and followed those laws and principles, which, of course, have their foundation in the moral law of the Ten Commandments. But here in verses 20 to 33, we have an extra special promise that God gives to his people that we're going to look at tonight. So verse 20 says this. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place that I have prepared Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you do indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you and the Amorites 
uh, sorry, into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I will cut them off and you shall not bow down to their gods, nor shall you serve them, nor do according to their works. But you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make uh, all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the, and the Hittite, which are from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea uh, Philistia and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it shall surely be a snare to you. The title of my message tonight is The Battle is the Lord's. The Battle is the Lord's. You know, the people of Israel had experienced some amazing things in this short span of their life. They, of course, observed God's amazing power in Egypt as he delivered all the plagues to this a uh, huge nation. They, they uh, experienced God's salvation through the Passover and his deliverance as they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Uh, they had experienced God's provision uh, through the supply of the manna that fell every morning for their uh, provision and their sustenance. They'd seen God's presence on the mountain uh, had seen the visible representation of the glory and the manifestation of God. Uh, they had received God's precepts through the law, through both the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and then through those civil laws that we just looked at. I mean, they have come a long way since their slave days in Egypt. And yet still, while they're encamped among the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, they still have a long way to go. Uh, God speaks to them and uh, he gave, gives them his law. He's given them his law, but he has yet to give them his land. And of course, this was the purpose after all. This was the promise, not simply that they would be freed from Egypt, but that they would be free to go into the promised land. They still had a long way to go. They had a land to occupy. They had enemies to conquer and they had a life to establish. And so all that God is doing here at the foot of Mount Sinai is he is equipping the people in the uh, uh, his covenantal people to uh, to live in the land that he is going to give to them. Of course, he equipped them already with certain resources when they plundered the Egyptians and took with them cattle and and uh, sheep and all the different things that they took with them out of Egypt. They have plenty of resources He's equipped them with his law, <clears throat> that moral foundation to guide and and, uh, and and establish them in the land. He's equipped them with his his presets and he's uh, equipped them, hopefully, with the fear of the Lord, which we know is the beginning of wisdom. But here what we see is after God gives his law, 
And after he gives them all of these things, he gives them this wonderful promise that as they are going to make their way into the land, he is going to send someone before them to fight for them and to do the work of God on their behalf. This command or this promise that he gives is a a humbling reminder to them, but also, I think, to us as we look at this further and further. And that is essentially this, that their victories in the past and the victories that they were going to experience in the future, they needed to understand that all of those were completely dependent on the presence and the power of God, that their salvation that their deliverance and their future conquest through the land that God was going to give them was not going to come by their own hand or by their own strength, but by the power of God that was going to go before them. You know, we are, as they are, as they were, we are uh, often proud and feeble creatures, are we not? We need constant reminding and, and revealing. God needs to constantly reveal this to us that they're are indeed forces at work in this world that are beyond our knowledge and beyond our control. And the danger for Israel, as it is for us, is that uh, we tend to forget and take credit for things that belong to God. And so God sometimes has done this throughout Israel's history. He's kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit to help them to remember that, no, 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 Uh, I'm the one who is doing all of this. I'm the one who is uh, causing you to be victorious. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. And we need that constant reminder because as sinful, proud human beings, we often are tempted to think that the successes of our life or the blessings that fall or any of these things are because of our own efforts rather than giving glory to God. And so God has to remind them. And I think he does that here in verses 20 to 33, that, you know what, they aren't actually that great or that strong, that everything that's going to come to the past in the future is because of God's mighty power and presence. And so as we look at these verses, chapter verses 20 to 33, I want us to look at three aspects of this uh, promise that he gives to his people. First of all, the promised person. Uh, then the promised presence, and then thirdly, the promised purpose. Okay, the promised person, the promised presence, and the promised purpose. So God says that as part of this promise, he is going to send a person, an angel, a being. And he is the one who's going to go before you. So who is this being? He says, I will send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. He says, beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Well, who is this being that God promises that is going to go before the nation of Israel? Well, the word angel uh, in both the Hebrew and then in the Greek, which is the uh, if you uh, if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, both the words that are used to translate the word angel essentially mean the same thing. They mean a, a messenger. That's what the word angel essentially means. Uh, this word is used to describe normal human messengers. If you send someone to take a message 
to deliver a message anyway on your behalf, they would be considered an angel. That's what the word means. But it also uh, describes a heavenly being, a heavenly messenger, one who delivers a message on behalf of God. So who is this angel? Well, there's a few different interpretations. There's a few different ideas. If you read different commentaries, they have some different perspectives. I'll explain what my I think my uh, argument is. There's a couple of ideas. First of all, some people just think it's just an ordinary angel, just one of the you know run of the mill angels that God sends to uh, go before the people of Israel. Uh, some of the early church fathers, such as Tertullian and, and even Augustine, uh, try to make the case that they believe that this is referring to Joshua, uh, that the angel or the messenger that God is going to send is going to be Joshua. They try to make the connection when he says, for my name is in him, uh, that this is, of course, Joshua serving as a picture or as a, uh, as a type of Christ. And we know that Joshua in many ways is a type of Christ and that the Hebrew word for Jesus is Yeshua. And so they try to make the argument that this angel or this messenger is uh, is, in fact, going to be fulfilled by the person of Joshua. Some argue that it's Michael, the archangel. Uh, For example, in Daniel chapter 12, uh, the Bible describes that Michael is the great prince of Israel who who oversees and protects uh, God's people. And then there's others uh, who believe that this is a reference to the angel of the Lord, which I will Look at and we'll talk about which many believe to be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to look at how this person is described for us and maybe this will give us some clues. Uh, This angel, of course, is someone who's to be feared. He says, be aware of him, be uh, be wary of him in the sense uh, he has a, a great amount of power. Well, any angel is someone to be feared. We know that people's response if God appear or if, if God sent an angel, for example, Gabriel to Mary, their first response was fear. I mean, you didn't want to come face to face with an angel. You still don't want to come face to face with an angel. Angels, even if they are just ordinary angels or Gabriel or whoever, uh, they are beings to be feared because of their great power. And of course, their authority that's given to them by God. But this angel is also to be obeyed. He says, beware of him and you obey his voice. Well, again, ordinary angels. If an angel tells you to do something, you probably should obey. Not that you should be listening to angels. Uh, But in the scriptural instances, God sends angels to deliver his messages. But there's something unique about this particular angel is that he has the authority to forgive sin. He says, beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. And he also bears within him the name of God. He says, for my name is in him. Well, these clues, I think, point us and they sort of eliminate some of these possibilities, the other possibilities. Because you see, the name of God was not just a name. Uh, The name of God uh, is essentially the revelation of the character and attributes of God. He was uh, Jehovah or Yahweh, the the self-existent one. You see, in that name, the name of Yahweh, essentially it encompasses the very nature and essence of God. He is the I am, the self-existent one, the one who does not rely upon anything or anybody to exist. He exists Purely because he exists, he needs no one and depends upon no one. He is the great I am. 
And it's interesting that in Exodus chapter 3, which is, of course, the uh, account of the burning bush, when God reveals his name to Moses, it says specifically when Moses uh, catches a glimpse or sees a bit of the burning bush, it says specifically that it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in the midst of a bush. It's interesting. It says it's the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in the midst of the bush. And then that angel or that appearance of God uh, speaks to Moses as God reveals himself as the I am. But there's a distinguishing, distinguishing aspect of that, of of that being there. That being in Exodus chapter three is distinguished from God, the father, yet at the same time has all of these uniquely divine attributes as the I am. When it says that he has the ability to forgive sin or he will not pardon your transgressions, we know that there's only one being in the entire universe who has the authority to forgive or to pardon transgressions. And that is God himself. Mark chapter two, verse seven, Jesus says, who can forgive sins but God alone? Isaiah forty three twenty five, God says, I even am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Only one person in all of the universe has the authority and the ability to pardon and forgive sins. So where else do we see this kind of being? Where else do we see him appearing? I think that Joshua Skipping ahead to Joshua chapter 5, Joshua gets actually to see and meet this angel, if you would, this messenger of God. If you remember the story, it's kind of one of my favorite little stories in, in the Bible. I find it quite comical in some ways. But Joshua and the people of Israel are getting ready to to uh, destroy the city of Jericho. Remember, uh, they're getting ready for, well, not even really battle. They're getting ready to march around the city. And before they go ahead, Joshua looks and he sees this man or this person who is standing uh, out, uh, standing there and he's got his sword drawn. And so Joshua doesn't recognize this guy. And so Joshua goes up to him and, and you kind of get the sense that Joshua is sussing this guy out. And I love it. He says, uh, uh, are, are you for us or are you against us? That's the way you are. Who's whose team are you on? Whose side are you on? That's the way we often, you know, that's what we want to know. I mean, you, you would want to know who, whose whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And I love the response. The response is not, oh, I'm on your team. The response from that angel or that messenger is no. <laughs> In other words, you're asking the wrong question. But as commander of the army of the Lord of hosts, that's who I am. In other words, I ask the questions around here, Joshua. It's not, am I on your team? It's, are you on my team? Are you on my side? And what happens then? Joshua falls down on his face and he worships the commander of the army of the hosts of the Lord. Now, one thing you know about angels, ordinary angels, they are never, ever, ever, ever permitted to accept worship. They never accept worship. And uh, we see this in the New Testament. They don't receive the worship of man. They're not worthy to receive our worship. They reject the worship. But this commander, this angel, accepts the worship of Joshua. And he tells Joshua to remove your shoes for the place you're standing is holy ground. Remember, that's exactly what the angel of the Lord told Moses to do at the burning bush. I believe that's the same being. 
that the commander that Joshua saw is the same angel or messenger that God is telling Moses that he's going to send before them to fight their battles. And so we see this uh, aspect about him that he is bears the very name of God. And so I believe that the messenger, the one who was going before Israel, is the angel of the Lord, which I believe to be a pre-incarnate representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who brought God's message of salvation to the people. He's the one who delivered them from bondage. He's the one who led them through the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. And he is the one who's going to go before them into battle. I believe that's the angel of the Lord. And also John MacArthur agrees with me. So therefore, I must be right now. That's the promised person. Who is this person? It's the angel of the Lord. The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. He has the ability to forgive sin. He bears the very name of God. And it's interesting, as you look at the language, even in just this chapter, he says, my angel will go before you. And then he flips in many ways and talks about how I will send my fear before you. God will do all of these things. So you see this being who is essentially given the same authority and qualities as God, but is distinguished from God the Father. That's the promised person. Well, second of all, look at the promised presence. The promised presence that this angel, this, uh, this messenger, the angel of the Lord, will go before you. He will be with you. You know, I think the idea of the concept of this kind of, you know, a, a guardian angel who kind of watches over us is often very comforting to many, even people who are non-believers like to think about this concept that we all have this guardian angel who kind of watches over us and that there are forces at work that we are unaware of. Well, the Bible is very clear throughout both the Old and New Testaments that God and both the heavenly and demonic host are indeed at work in this world, even though we cannot see it. We are reminded of this, and we just did a series recently in our morning services when we were kind of in full lockdown um, on Ephesians chapter 6, on the spiritual battle that is raging all around us at all times. And we, we, we know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the darkness, rulers of the darkness of this world. We understand that there are things that are going on in this world that, that are, are beyond our five senses. And that both God and the satanic host are also at work. And occasionally, as I said, God gives us glimpses and reminders uh, into this uh, spiritual world, into this heavenly world, and reminds us, especially as, as God's people, that we indeed are not alone. That's what Joshua received, wasn't it? He got that glimpse that he was not going to this battle alone, but that the angel of the Lord was going to fight for them and provide the victory for them. But I think in this instance here, the reality that God is what God is saying to Israel in the fact that he has to send his angel before them is a is a great reminder. And it's a very it's this promise really tells us something not only about Israel, but about God himself. Remember, God had made a covenant with Abraham. This covenant was an unconditional covenant. God had promised that he would 
from Abraham's seed, raise up and, and, uh, and, and, and bring a people. And that these people would then occupy a land. And that in them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was a promise that God made. That was going to happen. God was going to see that through. It was an unconditional covenant. And why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Israel? Well, we read it earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. He says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Why are they holy? For the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. Now, man, if, if you're reading that and you're a Jew, you're like, wow, that is so, that's amazing. God's chosen us and we're God's special treasure. And, 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 uh, and uh, you know, he's chosen us. I mean, of all the people he chose us, isn't that amazing? And then I love what he says, but the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all the people. Well, that's humbling. I didn't choose you because you were mighty. You were least amongst all the people. I didn't choose you because you were great. I didn't choose you because there was anything special in you. I chose to set my love upon you. That's why I chose you. You were the least. You were the weakest. You were the poorest. You were slaves. You were nothing in the eyes of the world. But I have set my love upon you so that I might show myself strong to the world. You see, God's choice of Israel was not based upon their ability or their strength, but simply because he chose to set his love upon them. You see, God must fulfill his covenant. God must Bring that people into that land. But God does not leave the fulfillment of his plan merely completely in the hands of the people. God was going to see this through. You see, they were too small. They were too weak. They were too untrained. They were too unskilled to, to just for God to say, OK, go for it. Have a go. See how you go. It's you. It's one on seven. That's what it is. There's seven nations. One on seven. Those aren't good odds. You don't do too well. One on seven. You're not going to do it by yourself. You're not going to defeat the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and all the other ites that are in the land. You can't do it. You're too small. You're too weak. But that's not why I chose you in the first place. You see, just like the Israelites were unable to free themselves or save themselves, they had to be dependent and realize Going forward, that the victories that they were going to encounter were purely because of the power and the hand of God going before them. You see, the promise to Israel that God would indeed go before them and that the victories over their enemies and the blessings that they were to enjoy in the land were not because of their great strength or their great wisdom or their great ability or because of their wealth, but rather because God was going to fight for them and God was going to bless them. You know, I can't help but see the parallels in many ways to the way the Bible describes us in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 26 to 31 reminds us that not many wise, not many noble, not many strong are called. But God has chosen the weak things in this world to confound those things which are mighty. 
that God's strength is made, is declared through our weakness, that, that we see all through the book of Acts, God using untrained, unskilled fishermen and, 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 uh, uh, to, to declare the word of God, to spread the gospel. Uh, God uses uh, even the Apostle Paul, I think, with all of his genius and with all of his abilities. I honestly think that the Apostle Paul was probably not an eloquent speaker. I don't think he was this commanding presence in the pulpit. I get the impression when you read the when you read even the writings of Paul and the accusations that are made against him that that people thought of him as a babbler and and uh, that he doesn't come with with uh, eloquent speech or wise words or any of these things. And yet God uses all of these weak things to to accomplish his will and his purpose. Why? Because he reminds us that the the advancement of God's plan and God's purpose does not come through the power of people, but through the power of God. And are we not promised this same presence? Jesus in Matthew 28 says, Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. God will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. He will go before us. The promise of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16 reminds us that he is this comforter is coming. He's going to convince and he's going to convict and he's going to guide people into all truth. And so any blessing and any victory that takes place in by the hands of God's people is purely because of the power and the presence of God that goes before them. And we are reminded of that here in Exodus chapter 23. You see, we like Israel are comforted knowing that although we are weak in the eyes of the world, that God goes before us and is with us. And no, we're not trying to possess a land. No, we're not trying to take over and destroy nations as God had given Israel the, the commandment to do. But we are to go forth in the Holy Spirit and in power, preaching the gospel. And we sow and we work But God gives the increase. He's the one who goes before, who prepares the hearts of men and women to receive the message of salvation. So for Israel, there's this promised presence. They they had this assurance that they were not going forward on their own, that the battles that they had to face were not ones that they had to win by their own strength. They went forth in the presence and power of God. And you think about it, too. You know, Oh, we'll get to it in a minute. Hang on. Uh, what's the promised purpose? In other words, what's this angel going to do for them? Well, we see, first of all, he's going to fight for Israel. Verse 22, he says, but if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Havites and Jebusites. And I will cut them off. Uh, verse 27, he says, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you and they will drive out all these people. What was the purpose of this angel, this messenger, which we believe to be the pre-incarnate Christ? He was first of all, he was going to fight for Israel. Now, how did this work? Well, we know that Israel did have to occasionally pick up a sword We know they did have to actually do something. It wasn't that they just sat on their lawn chairs and watched the angel of the Lord decimate all of these people. They did actually have to go forward and they had to participate in this battle that went that went on. But ultimately, it was the the power of God that was going to bring them the victory. God was going to deliver their enemies into their hands. And I love it. He says, I will send my fear before you. 
In other words, like when you walk into this land, the people will already be prepared essentially for defeat. And we see this, don't we? When Joshua goes to Jericho, he sends his spies into Jericho and Rahab takes them in. Rahab says to the spies, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Like we we know this is yours. And she says that the terror of you has fallen on us. That all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when he came out of Egypt and what he did to the two kings of the Amorites. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted and neither did there remain any courage in anyone because of you. God was fulfilling his promise. The fear of God was going before them, prepping their enemies essentially for destruction. And you look at this, the battle of Jericho. I mean, that battle, I mean, look at the who who in their right mind thinks that a good battle strategy is to march around a, a city seven times and then yell and blow trumpets. That is you will not find that in any military strategy book in all of history. And that's what God told them to do. And the walls, as we know, came tumbling down. And they marched in and the battle was over. Not one soldier lost. Why? Because God had gone before them. They had obeyed the Lord. And God had brought them the victory. But look at the next battle. We know the next battle, right? Now there's sin in the camp. Achan is taken of the uh, forbidden treasure, if you would, of Jericho, and he's hidden in his tent. He's stolen it. And so then they go up to Ai and they become independent of God. They think that they can just go up by their own. They don't even need everybody. They can just kind of, yeah, well, it's only a small little city. Jericho was a massive city and fortified walls. And Ai is just a little, just a little postage mark on, in, uh, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in Canaan. Well, it'll be easy. We'll just go up and, and they're defeated. God wasn't fighting for them that time until they cleansed the land, cleansed their hearts, cleansed the people from the sin that was there. So if they'd obeyed, God was going to fight for them. I mean, they were unstoppable and unbeatable when God was fighting for them. He was going to fight for his people. He was also going to provide for his people in the land. He says God promised there was a a blessing In verse 25, he says, so you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land and I will fulfill the number of your days. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12, this echoes the same uh, uh, passage. And uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 12, he says, then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and you keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep you uh, keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you and he will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which you have sworn your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you uh, or among your livestock. And the Lord shall take away all sickness and, and will afflict you uh, with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. God promised to provide and protect Israel. 
What was God promising here? Well, he promised them that if they obeyed his word, because God always blesses his word, if they obeyed his word or his voice, essentially, that God would bless the people in the land. What was he going to bless? He mentions two aspects. First of all, he was going to bless their work. Now, it's important to remember that they were still commanded to work. That's what we learned in the Sabbath principle, that God had commanded, blessed the the nature of work. Work is a good thing. Work is a gift from God. It was a commandment of God. They were to work six days and to rest seven days. There's a specific blessing that God gives, especially to Israel, around the obedience to the Sabbath principle and the Sabbath command that God gives to them. And there was a blessing attached to that. He was going to bless their work. The fruit of their work was going to be in abundance. Their grain and their new wine and their oil and all of their cattle and offspring were going to increase. It was an immense blessing. You see, when God, sorry, when Israel was obedient to the principles of God's word, God blessed their work. There was an abundance of blessing, but also that God says he was going to bless their health. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses 14 to 15. He talks about how you'll be blessed above all people, nor shall your male or female be barren among you and your livestock. And the Lord will take all sickness away and afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt. Now, it's interesting. A lot of commentators kind of skip over this part. It's like they don't want to tackle it. They don't want to have to deal with it. But I think it's an important aspect to think about. Now, I think we need to remember that some of these promises are specific to the nation of Israel. But but he says God blessed his people and essentially and if they followed the precepts and statutes that God gave to them through his word which we haven't looked at all of them obviously yet, but the later ones that God gives to them, that one of the blessings would be amongst (coughs) Excuse me, amongst their health. I say that as I'm clearing my throat. First of all, he says that you will will remove all sickness from you and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt. What does that mean? Does that mean they'll never catch a cold? Does that mean they'll never be sick? Is that what God is saying? I don't think so. What I think God is essentially establishing for them is if they walked in obedience to the laws and the precepts that he had given to them, which included things like the dietary laws, which included things like the principles of work, which included the things uh, of hygiene and uh, and all the things that God gave to them. Also included in that is the proper means of worship as opposed to the pagan way of worship that they would be spared from a lot of the epidemical or pandemical type diseases that we often see that are a result of human sin or human irresponsibility that we see in our world. I mean, we're very familiar with this now, aren't we? What we often see is we have to understand is that most epidemical type diseases are often the result of the by or the byproduct of of human sin or human irresponsibility, either through either through intentional disobedience or irresponsibility, some ways connected to pagan practices. For example, God gave specific rules around dietary requirements and worship practices like not drinking the blood of animals and all these types of things and hygiene practices, which if they obeyed these things would eliminate the possibility for these pestilences, as the Bible describes it, to swarm in their land. Think about it. Think about all the diseases that wouldn't be around if we if people obeyed God's standards of ethics and cleanliness and even worship. 
You know, it's interesting. I was reading just in preparation for this, some of the practices that are still going on today, by the way, in certain lands, which are often connected. There's always a spiritual element. So in Zambia, parts of Zambia, for example, which are still, of course, dealing with uh, areas of uh, witchcraft and paganism and different things like that. Some of the practices that are involved in their in their religion are really some of the ways that a lot of these diseases are often spread. For example, there's a ritual that is uh, commanded or, or is uh, recommended or basically um, encouraged that if a, a wife loses her spouse or her husband dies, that the witch doctor will tell her in order to free the ghost that is in body or is still stuck in her husband, that she needs to go and sleep with his brother. And that will somehow free the ghost of the deceased. There are witch doctors still today which tell people who are infected with HIV that the way to clean themselves is to go and find a virgin and to sleep with them. And that will cleanse them of their disease. So it just proliferates these, these, uh, these diseases all throughout the land. They're all tied back to pagan worship. We know that certain eating, certain animals brings diseases from the animal world into the human world. And we've seen the results of all of these types of things. And God told the people of Israel to keep themselves from such practices, to keep themselves from these things. And as a result, God would bless them in terms of their health. Now, these blessings of fruitfulness of the womb and all of these types of things, I think, were given to Israel we don't necessarily see these kinds of physical blessings repeated necessarily in the New Testament. We don't have these promises given to the church that if you obey, you'll never experience a miscarriage or, or, uh, or get sick or anything like this. As a, as a matter of fact, we're often told, and we're not also told that you know, if we obey, that we'll be the envy of the world. As a matter of fact, we're kind of told the exact opposite, that if you obey God and live the way you're supposed to be, you'll be the scorn of the world. We are trained through the New Testament, not necessarily to expect physical blessing, but we're reminded that all of our blessings are the spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus. We're reminded that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so there's a distinction there. There's a difference there between these specific covenantal promises that God gives to Israel and how God deals with his people now at the, as a church. But... What I would say to this, God still blesses his word. And people who live in obedience to his word will experience the blessing of God on their life. And even if that blessing is not seen in material possessions or any of these things, because I don't want you going away thinking that I'm living in disobedience because maybe I'm unable to have children or we had a miscarriage or any of these types of things. That is that is not at all what we are are assuming here or preaching here. But what we are reminded of is that the principle of sowing and reaping still is in existence. And whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. In the sense that if we sow to our flesh and to our sin, we will of our sin and of our flesh reap corruption. But if we sow to the spirit, we will reap life everlasting. So God has indeed, God does bless his word. When we live under the authority of God's word, when we obey God's word, God sends his blessing. 
and God goes before us. So, finishing all this up, Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33, through this passage, we are reminded, as given as an example here to Israel, we're also reminded that apart from the power and the person of God, Israel would never have been free, nor would they be able to conquer And we ought to be comforted that that same messenger that went before the people of Israel came to earth, not in a bush, but wrapped in human flesh to once again bring the message of salvation to the world. The same angel, the same messenger, I'm not saying that Jesus is an angel, the same messenger that went before the people of Israel and fought their battles and brought them into the promised land, delivered them from slavery. He is the same one who still provides freedom from sin and death, and he leads his people through the rest of their life. Notice it's interesting. God says to the people, he says, I'm not going to drive out these people all at once. I'm going to drive them out little by little. Bit by bit. And I think that's so synonymous with our Christian life, isn't it? That we take it one step at a time. That God leads us one step at a time. That we face various battles throughout the rest of our life. But all the while, we don't trust in chariots and horses or governments or people. But we always trust in the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ who goes before us, who will never leave us nor forsake us, who is with us to the end of the age. And regardless of where this world is going and what is the world is happening, God is with us and God's going before us. No one is more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Let's pray and then I'll invite Pastor Andrew up tonight. Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your son, the one who goes before, uh, the one who prepares the way, the one who accomplishes salvation, the one who delivers us, uh, the one who brings us in uh, to that wonderful place of blessing under the shadow of the Almighty. We thank you so much that we've been given all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, that there's nothing that we lack. That we have everything we need, all the resources we need to live a godly life. We thank you that although there are evil forces at work in this world, there is a God who is in control, who is going before, and there is no one and no being who can stand against our God. Lord, give us confidence, give us boldness, give us courage to do the work and to live the life that you would have us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.